Is there anyone else that while that song was going on was saying, yes, this is my story? Uh, This is my story, and uh, there are many of us in the room that have been so convinced of our own personal sin, and we are so grateful for the overwhelming grace of God. Uh, Just this past week, I was involved in two separate discussions. Uh, Both are two two men who are investigating the claims of of Christianity. They're making our way through uh, the Gospel of John, and each of them, although using different words, in essence said the same thing. That their primary hang-up just simply is this, I just cannot buy into the divinity of Christ. I believe that he was a good man. I believe that he was probably the greatest teacher that's ever lived. I believe we should model our lives after him, but I, I just can't buy into this person dying and then being raised again from the dead. And, uh, and I respect when someone is doing a, an investigation and trying to give a sincere look. And so there are many who can't come to that conclusion. There are others of us who have come to that conclusion. But I can tell you this with sincerity of all of the things about Christianity. This is what I cherish the most. And I believe that there really is a Savior who lived a perfect life who did everything that was necessary in order to fulfill the law and the responsibilities that God had required of man. And I come nowhere close to doing that. On the best of days that I have, where my mind's attention and my heart's affections really are centered in on God, on my best of days, I have mixed motives. I'm not sure there has ever been something I've ever done with a 100% pure motive. Nothing truly altruistic. I am grateful that this Savior, not not when I got my act together, but according to Romans chapter 5, in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and he pursued me. This is the central truth that I cherish the most. Just this very week, I had to once again go to, to one of my children and say, I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that. And I wish I could say it was the only time I've had to do that in the last 15 years. But I'll probably have to do it again in another 15 minutes. I am so grateful. I really believe that this man, Jesus, did everything that was necessary and then offers complete forgiveness of sins to me. Now, Today, we start on just a four-week series. It's going to be on the book of Romans. I'm sorry, one chapter in Romans, chapter 12. Several years ago, a gentleman challenged me to memorize two chapters in the Bible. He challenged me to memorize James chapter 1 and Romans chapter 12. He said, if you remember those two chapters and you meditate and you, you dwell upon those, that will take you a long way in your spiritual pilgrimage. Romans chapter 12 has proven to be um, uh, so effective for me on a personal level. Now, uh, Romans 12 uh, sets up, in my opinion, one of the greatest transitions, or is the greatest transition in all of the scriptures. In the first 11 chapters, there is a tremendous amount of what we call indicatives. It indicates it is that which is true. Now, it does not mean that there aren't any commands in the first 11 chapters. It just means that over and over and over again, Paul is telling us what is true. Then you have the first two verses, what we'll sit on today of Romans 12, that give us this therefore, and there's this transition. And then the rest of the book of Romans is devoted to what should we do? 
Romans 1 through 11, what is true? Romans 12 through 16, what should we do? Now, please note the order. Note that Paul says what is true first before getting to what to do. If we reverse that, we run into serious problems. We must understand who God is and what it is that he has done in order to know how to live a life that he actually desires. Many of us with the best of intentions will white knuckle our Christianity, trying to do everything we can to please God, hanging on as tightly as we can without knowing that God has said you don't have to hang on. I got you. If I were to ask you this question, what would you think would be the greatest need in the church today? Do think on a micro level, meaning Wildwood Church, but also think on a macro level, the church. What is the greatest need? And we'll restrict it to the American church right now. What's the greatest need that we have? Some might say integrity. We must live out what it is that we say we believe. Some might say passion, that we seem not to be filled with the hatred of God as much as we are an apathy of God. Some might fill in the blank, a a more holy and pure life. Many, many things that we could say. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite theologians, said this in 1990. He said, the greatest need that we have is to know God better. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is to have a deeper knowledge of God. We have learned to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop evangelistic strategies, and administer discipleship programs. But we have forgotten how to pray. I am convinced the greatest need that we have is to know God better. Are there things that we need? Uh, Is that the only thing that we need? Of course not. But it is the greatest thing that we need. If I were to ask you today, how deeply do you sense that you know God? What would you say? Paul is writing this book in the year 57 AD from Corinth. He's likely on his third missionary journey when he is writing this. He is writing to a group of people who um, have a basic understanding of Christianity. He's writing to let them know a few things about their particular religion. He's going to spend the first 11 chapters getting across what I think to be, what would have been at the time, a profound truth. Religious people... Offer things to God. Religious people offer property and animals and other types of sacrifice. Religious people offer things to God. Now, that's not necessarily bad in and of itself. We should view all of our things as wanting to belong to God, but religions all over the world offer things to God. Do you know what separates Christianity? Followers of Jesus offer themselves to God. Think about marriage. Think about parenting. Think about the deepest of friendships that you have. What is it that you want the most from this other person? Is it things from them? 
or is it them? What is it that means the most to you in any relationship? Is it the gifts that are given? Gifts are great. It it oftentimes shows that they're thinking uh, about us or that I'm thinking about this other individual. I know them, et cetera. Nothing wrong with gifts. But is that what your soul wants? Or do you want this person? This is what Paul is writing about. What he is talking about is how followers of Jesus offer themselves. Now, Romans 1 through 11, what is he ultimately saying? What is true in these first uh, uh, 11 chapters? In chapter 1, he's saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the wrath of God is being delivered upon, is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. Now, this is not unjust of God because this is something that mankind has earned. Men have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have worshiped the created as opposed to the creator. In chapter 2, it tells us that God is a righteous judge and that sin deserves judgment. Chapter 3 tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. Being born into a Jewish home, he would say, does absolutely nothing. Being born into a Christian home does absolutely nothing in and of itself. It gives us tremendous advantages. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and can be justified freely by his grace. In chapter 4, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. The promise of salvation comes through righteousness by faith. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's spiritual descendants in chapter 5. He tells us, therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through the person of Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Spiritual death comes through Adam. Spiritual life comes through Jesus. Where sin exists, grace abounds all the more. In chapter 6, he then asks the question, should we sin then all the more? If grace abounds all the more, where sin exists all the more, by no means we shouldn't do that. We are dead to sin. We should consider ourselves alive to Christ, alive in Christ. Present yourselves, he says, to God for his righteous purposes. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Our position is dead to sin and alive to God. In chapter 7, he lets us know that although our position is that, it doesn't necessarily mean our practice is that. In chapter 7, he writes in there, the very thing I hate doing, I find myself doing. That which I want to do, I can't bring myself to do it. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death, he says. And then he says, praise be to Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 starts out by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It lets us know this present suffering is not worthy of comparing to the glory that is to be revealed, creation itself is awaiting the return of Christ. It is groaning. It is anticipating a time in which the world will be absent from all of the decay that has been brought in due to sin. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He tells us in that chapter that in Christ we are more than conquerors. In chapter 9, he says that God sovereignly chooses. Does this make him unjust? Absolutely not. It does not, their, uh, salvation, therefore, does not depend on desire or effort, but rather on God's mercy. Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Israel, 
did not believe. They did not pursue righteousness by faith. They believed it was in the cultic practices that would make them such. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul says Jesus is that stumbling stone. In chapter 10, Paul's heart's desire and prayers that Israel would be saved. He actually says, if I could take their place, I would. His love and passion for them. However, Paul is not Jesus. He recognizes that. He says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. These are not just trite words that might come out, but it's everyone who is calling upon the Lord. Those who in desperation know they have no hope in and of themselves. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In chapter 11, in essence, he tells us that there is somehow another, and I don't fully understand this, a remnant of Israel that is going to be saved. But I want to draw your attention to the last few verses of chapter 11 before we read just the first two verses of chapter 12. And look at how he summarizes. I think in this place, he's summarizing in particular chapters 9 through 11. However, I don't think we should just limit it to that. I think we should take, go all the way back to chapter 1. But in particular, this doxology. Listen to what Paul has to say here. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Here's what Paul says. In light of all that it is that God has done, in all the ways that he has said, all the effort, so to speak, that he has made, the planning that went into it, all that God has done, who would have dreamed this up? Would you have saved you, knowing how you would respond to God throughout your entire lifetime? If you were God and, and you knew that you were going to love God as little as you love, would you save you? No way. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has done something for God? That God says, whew, thanks for that. Because I was really getting down. I was really discouraged. I mean, there's a whole lot of people that are not acknowledging me. They're not recognizing me. I, I was really hurt. So thank you for your kind encouragement. You have really lifted me up today. Who has done anything for God? And especially in comparison to what he has done for us. Oh, the depth. We can't plumb the depths of the riches of his knowledge, his wisdom, his glory, his majesty. It is never ending. Paul breaks out into this doxology and just closes it with for from him. Everything is initiated from the person of God. In the beginning, there was nothing but God. No atoms, no molecules, nothing. And out of darkness, God 
spoke and he created everything into existence that is in existence. For from him and to him, everything that is in existence was created for the express purpose of putting on display the majesty and wisdom and knowledge and beauty and excellence of God himself. Everything was made for him. It was made by him, but it is also for him. Or from him and through him and to him are all things to him, meaning the direction of everything is designed and it's fulfilling its purpose when it is pointing upward in nature. When you and I walk in a direction that is Godward in nature and that God is the one who gets the glory and the honor and the credit for our lives, that is us fulfilling our purpose. Now, how does that happen? How do we break out of a place where if you are in any way like me, you have very little trouble thinking about yourself and your own glory and your reputation and and what it is that you want? I have, no one has to convince me to think about me. How do we break out of that and live a life that God has called us to live. And what does Paul have to say about it? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. We've already talked about the therefore. Now, this is the fourth major therefore in this book. This is the granddaddy of them all. It is the transition from all of the first 11 chapters down to this. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, what we just went through, offer. Now, the words that he chooses to use here, I urge and offer go together. This word urge is not a direct command, but it's also not just a mere suggestion. It's somewhere in between those two things. And here's why. Because in order to offer something, it must be freely offered. It cannot be forcefully offered. Something forcefully offered is not offered. Offer, I urge, I'm begging, I'm pleading with you. I can't force you to do it, and God's not going to force you to do it. His spirit inside of you is going to empower you, not just inspire you, but he's going to enable you to offer freely, which means this. I am, I am coming here, Lord, because I want to come here. Now, you may, from time to time, struggle, I certainly do, with not wanting to be offered before God. That's the flesh. Here's the question. Do you want to want to? When your desire is not there, when you say, I'm not feeling it right now, Lord. I'm not sure I want to bow the knee of submission to you. Is there something deeper inside of you that says, but I want to want that. Great. 
Tell God right now you don't want it, but you want to want it. God, would you increase that inside of me? I urge you, I beg, I plead, offer, offer what? Your bodies. Now, this should not be limited to just that which is external in nature. That would be a misreading of the text. He is not just merely saying, offer the flesh, the bones, my hands, my eyes, my mouth. He's not just saying that. He's talking about the totality of who we are. Offer yourselves, offer your bodies freely, wholly. Now, where to God? Not to religious service, not to a philosophy, not to, to a theory, not to an ideal. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer yourselves, to present yourselves to God. I have, in many uh, times in my life, wholly given myself, 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 I got multiple personalities, so I want to say I have wholly offered myself to Alabama football. At various stages in my life, it has consumed my mind, it has controlled my heart, uh, my time. I have gotten on the internet and watched every interview that I could possibly watch. I've read, read every article. I've caught up with every recruit that's coming in. I have, I've seen everything there is to... I have given myself wholly over to Alabama football. It's a free offering. And at some point, I actually think God is pleased with that. I, I, what would it look like if just the folks in this room and then watching online, what would it look like if we just made that step? Where my mind was, Lord, there is nothing in me about me, there's nothing that I own, there's nothing that is not offered to you. My money is yours. My car is yours. My house is yours. My talent is yours. My abilities are yours. My wife is yours. My children are yours. My friends are yours. My enemies are yours. I wonder what it would look like if just us, if we offered ourselves wholly over to God. <clears throat> Holy and pleasing to God because this is, in fact, your spiritual service of worship. Notice he says in here that these holy and pleasing offerings are, are living sacrifices. That we are sacrifices that are not just one time killed and then handed over. In the Old Testament, they would offer animals and they would do that by taking the life of that animal and then laying it on the altar. And in this particular sacrifice, I think that Paul is ref referencing right here, 
He's referring to an animal where the blood of the animal would be sprinkled across the altar. He would take it on each of the four posts on here. And it's just not just a one-time sacrifice that we would make of ourselves. This is an ongoing, we are living. In the Old Testament, they offered dead animals on an altar. Right here, Paul is saying that what is normative for the New Testament Christian is to offer himself as a living sacrifice on the altar. Meaning there is never a moment in which I'm not thinking, Lord, this is yours. It is always thinking, and, and, and when I crawl off of the altar, I say, Lord, help me get back on. They are living sacrifices. Now, notice they are holy and they are pleasing. What do these words mean? Holy means to be set apart. It is by God who has set us apart. He has made us unique. He has made us different. We will function different. We will think different. We will act different. From what? From every person who is not a follower of Jesus. Holy but also pleasing to God, where God is the one who delights in this particular sacrifice. Who is the sacrifice for? Not for the greater good. Not for the team. Not even for the church. The sacrifice is for the person of God. It is for his delight. It is for his purposes. I urge you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this right here is your spiritual service of worship. Now, this is where my beloved 1984 NIV, which is what we're reading from this morning, I think just gets it right. It is a spiritual service. Meaning this, it is a part of the inner man. It is not something that is just external in nature. But it is also a service. There are two words, two primary words that are used in the New Testament for uh, worship. One is proskuneo, the other is latreia. Proskuneo has to do with intimacy that is found as one draws near. Latreia is one that is used of the Old Testament priests when describing their services, as they would offer the services before God. Paul chooses to use that term right here. This is your spiritual inner, not just external, that which is coming from the heart, the mind, the will, the emotions. It is being offered. It is the service, however, that is done to the Lord. I hope you're catching on this. This is not something that accidentally happens. In the minds of the folks that would have been hearing this, they would have known to have this thought. No priest in the Old Testament accidentally slit the throat of an animal, accidentally put it on top of the altar, and accidentally worshiped. It was an intentional process, a methodical process, a planned process, one that was thought out, one that was fought against. They, if you are going to offer yourself wholly over to God, it will not come without a fight. Do not expect it to be easy. Do not poke the finger... Point the finger at yourself. Do not invite shame and unnecessary guilt upon yourself when you say, I'm not sure I want to do that. Because the Spirit of God is crying out inside of you, yes, off yourself, but the flesh 
is waging war against that and saying, do no harm. There is going to be an intense battle if you are going to offer yourself wholly over. It will be the battle of your life. Christianity is not an easy believism. What is easy, and praise God, it's simple, is that in order to be made right with God, all we must do is confess with our mouth, believe in our heart. We, we must cry out before God out of desperation, out of this sincere belief, I can't save myself. What's necessary to be made right with God for all of eternity is just simply faith and trust in the person of Jesus. When it comes to living a life that is pleasing to God, that ain't easy. That is a battle. And it starts right here with offering yourself. It is a spiritual act of worship now. It tells us what to avoid and it tells us what to pursue as we get close to close this out. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't do this. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this particular world. Now, what does that mean? It means the way that the world operates, functions, thinks, approaches, etc. Have you seen at any point in the last several years a distinction in between the way that the world thinks and the way that God thinks? And at times in the public realm, if you are going to believe what God believes, think what God thinks, says what God says, you will be viewed as the one who is the odd man out. You will be viewed as though you are out of your mind. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Now, notice what he's not saying. What he's not saying is get on the corner of every street and tell people how stupid they are and how bad they are and awful they are and that they're going to go to hell. What he says is don't buy in. Don't let yourself drift naturally into the ways and thinking uh, of the world. It, that train is moving in that direction. Resist it. I love the way that the J.B. Phillips paraphrase says that J.B. Phillips, uh, when it's uh, doing this entire uh, verse, says this, uh, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, and as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable to him, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. I'm going to tell you, that is going to happen. Do you know the number of conversations that I have with my children where it is apparent to me that they have already bought into something that the world is saying? And they're coming from a Christian home, a Christian church. And they have been taught the scriptures from the earliest of days. And don't just think it's a, my kid's problem. It's a me problem. When I find myself, maybe it's watching a, a movie or a television program, and I find myself pulling for something that the scriptures clearly teach is out of accord because it just feels so right. 
Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, what is it that we should do? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this term is an ongoing term. Continually be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is it that we even renew our minds? I think that what he's referring to here is in direct contrast to what was written in Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 32. It's describing humanity spiraling down in thought, motive, word, and deed until God finally hands them over until their bodies are just depraved in the process and destroyed. And right now, what he's saying is comparing and contrasting that. Instead of that downward spiral, actually have your mind renewed regularly and consistently. Please hear this. The only way I know for our minds to continually be renewed is by an onslaught of truth that is being intentionally and methodically poured into your brain. In other words, get familiar with God's word. If the only time you're being exposed to God's word is right here in this room, then please hear me. God loves you. He values you. He cherishes you. He is pleased with you because of what his son Jesus has done on your behalf. But there is no way your mind is going to get renewed if the only time you're exposed to God's word is when hacks like me talk about it. The Holy Spirit talking to you as you open up the scriptures and read into it on a regular and consistent basis with some sort of a plan. The Holy Spirit is a far better teacher than me. And hopefully he uses me on Sunday mornings and Bob and Todd and whoever else. But we pale in comparison to him. Can I ask you a difficult question? If you want your mind to be renewed, if you want to be offered before the Lord, wholly given over to him, where are you intentionally and methodically setting aside time so that you might hear what he has to say? We do what we want to do. And I want to charge you as hard as I know how to charge you. Not out of a legalistic, this is going to make you a better person. This is finally going to get you made right with God. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your, you're made right with God. It isn't about that. It's about being used by him. It's about walking with him. It's about knowing him deeply and intimately. And there's no way to do that outside of his word. So set aside time. Get a plan. We're going to help you with that over the next several weeks. Offer you some suggestions on some plans to be able to read. But get his word finally, and this is where I close. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. 
I don't think that he's referring to the specific will of God as to whether or not you should go to this college or whether you should buy this car or whether you should do. Well, I don't think that that's what he has in mind right here. I think what he has in mind is this. Let's put all this together. A person, a follower of Jesus who is offering themselves wholly, fully, freely over to God as a living sacrifice, meaning I'm all yours. Whatever you want, whenever you want, however, it's yours. Someone who is doing that, someone who is resisting being squeezed into the the, the mold of the world, who is having their mind renewed, praying, fasting, reading the scriptures, putting themselves in the pathway of God, someone who is spending time with him, someone who is getting to know him better, that person is going to know almost instinctively what God desires in any given moment. Because they're so familiar with what he wants. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be times and moments in life in which we say, I just don't know. I don't know what the Lord is calling me to here. Most of the time, God does not give me a choice between obvious something, this is the Lord's will, and this. I mean, I don't have choices typically that say, hey, do you want to serve this person or do you want to sacrifice this goat? I don't have those choices. Most of the time for me, there are choices between two relatively good things I'm trying to figure out what to do with. But what is normative, Paul says, is the person who walks so intimately with God, almost instinctively knows what he wants because... The motive of their heart is whatever you want. Do you want that? Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to walk with him? Or do you just want to come to a couple of cool services? Do you want God to use you in the lives of people in Tallahassee and beyond? Or do you just want a church that's going to meet all of your needs? Do you want to get to the end of your life utterly exhausted and spent and be able to say the same thing that Paul said, I have been poured out like a drink offering? Or do you just want to live a nice, easy, cush, religious life? Choose the former. You will come alive in the former. You will die a slow death in the latter.